Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. Well, I am really excited to have on the show today Malcolm Geit, world-renowned poet. Uh, there is an excellent profile of him by my colleague Kara Bettis in the January-February issue of Christianity Today. He is the author of numerous books of poems. I have them all and read them all the time, sometimes daily, uh, some of them, uh, especially, and I'll talk about later, uh, one poem in particular that meant a lot to me. He's also written The Word Within the Words, uh, which is a great short book on a theology of the way that words work and how they matter. And maybe my favorite of his prose books is Lifting the Veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God. Malcolm Geit, welcome to the show today. Hello, thank you very much for ha having me, and uh, thank you also to uh, Christianity Today for running that profile. It came to me out of the blue, the proposal to do it, but I thought Cara did a wonderful job researching it and interviewing it. It was a, a really well-written piece, I thought. I'd like to start by reading to you a text that I received just this morning from my friend Beth Moore, no relation except in Christ, but she knew we were recording today, and she wrote a poem offhand so that says, O kingdom come, what blessed sight, when I, though girl and beardless be, shall smoke a pipe with Malcolm Geit. <laughs> so she, uh, <laughs> she said... I follow her on Twitter and I'm very glad that she's become aware of my work and and uh, has sort of, I think, enjoyed, I think it was the word in the wilderness that she came across. So yeah, that's a very nice connection to make and all nice to start with a little bit of poetry, you know. <laughs> that thing about rhyming on somebody's name... There's a whole form of poetry called a clericue, which is comic poetry invented by Edmund Clerihue Bentley, where you start the poem with somebody famous's name and then you write a sort of witty-ditty afterwards, like Sir Christopher Wren went to dine with some men. He said, if anyone calls, say I'm designing St. Paul's. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is great. Well, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. But uh, the first thing I want to do is to think about, you have a poem called Amen. 
mm-hmm. where I'm from, pronounced amen, but uh, amen, yeah. in which uh, at one point you say, when will I ever learn to say amen, really assent at last to anything? And I'm wondering, when you think about the Christian gospel, how do you know it's true? Yeah, well, I think, you see, there's different kinds of assent, mm. different kinds, if you like, of amen to something. And it's one thing to be intellectually convinced that something is the case, but that may make no difference to you at all. It may be a fact, but it may be a fact which has not got any purchase on who you are or your life. So uh, although I think Christianity is true, and I think it's a set of beliefs that are, are actually the case, it's something much more than that. I mean, in the end, of course, the assent, the yes, the amen that we make to Christianity is actually to a person, it's to Christ himself. Mm. And it's a continuous yes, as it were. It's a kind of yes in the present continuous. That's why we keep repeating the word amen. In a sense, you can't have yet said the complete yes to Christ in you, nor yet heard all of his yes to you, you know, in Christ, all God's promises find their yes. Because you're in process, you're still in life, you have more and more to learn. I mean, I think the gospel in Arch, I'm always really delighted by the story, I don't know if it's true or not, about Thomas Aquinas, you know, having completed the Summa Theologia, the massive systematic work of theology, which has never been surpassed. And then he has a vision during the Eucharist, and he says to somebody, I've seen such things as make all my writings so much straw. You know, he recognized that the reality of God always overabundantly overflows the limitations of any expression or category. So there's this God who is hugely generous, from whom this great pleroma of love, this overflowing fullness of love is flowing to us. And there's us gradually learning to be loved, gradually beginning to ascent. Now, I actually think that learning to love is more important than having figured out all the jots and tittles and cross the T's on your perfectly articulated creed. And I think there are a lot of people who have problems, as they would see it, assenting to one bit or another of a Christian doctrine that's been reduced, as it were, to a set of abstract expressions. They may have some issues with that, and they may need to do a bit more thinking. But those same people who have that doubt are actually still in love with God, in love with Christ. And in fact, they may be, I would I would take this even further, I'd say that a really honest agnostic or atheist who can't quite say yes to something that they've been told yet because it doesn't completely make sense to them yet and who hesitate to say yes because it's, they're not quite sure it's true. Now, why does that person hesitate, however attractive it might be, if they're not quite sure it's true? The answer is because they honor truth, because they love truth, mm-hmm. and they don't want to assent to a falsehood. Well, one day they're going to discover that truth is also a person, that Jesus said, I am the truth. And I think there are people whose love of truth is their pathway to Christ. Mm. And it may necessarily, in an age which disbelieves in him, and in an era of skepticism and materialism, they may have a slightly more long and winding road to borrow a nice phrase from another Englishman, uh, before they they arrive at that. But even for the most sure and certain Christian, certain about the truths of the truth that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, or the truth that he really did die for our sins and, and rise for our justification, those are resplendent, in my view, eternal truths. And they can be reached from many different angles. But even the Christian who knows that and is certain of that is still in 
a learning and loving relationship with their father and with Christ. Mm. And that's not going to be completely fulfilled until the last day when we see him, you know, when faith passes into sight and we shall see face to face. One of the things that worried me when I was thinking about whether Christianity was the case and was beginning to move towards it as an undergraduate was that some of the Christians I met who were trying to evangelize me, they had these little pamphlets showing exactly what it all was and you just had to say this little prayer and sign on the dotted line just like they had. Mm-hmm. And they gave me the impression that once they'd achieved this little prayer to Jesus and this ascent to the fact that he died for their sins, that they needn't think about it again, ever again. You know, they seem to have arrived at an answer and ceased any sense of exploration. Now, one of the books that really helped me really come to Christianity, it had laid its seeds in me when I was a a little boy, but I reread it all just before my conversion, the Narnia stories. Mm -hmm. I utterly loved the bit at the end of the last battle where it turns out not to be an end at all, but a beginning. Mm -hmm. And they were just beginning the first chapter of this new adventure. I was very afraid of sort of certainty as stasis, as the simple end of inquiry. And Lewis's vision of a heaven which was so big and so deep and so calling you into the the higher countries of Aslan's country, that heaven itself would be a kind of progress Mm. into the fullness of God. So when somebody says to me, I'm not sure I've got it all yet, or I'm not sure I'm quite there, as I say in that poem, when will I ever learn say amen, I just see that as on a sliding scale. And compared with the infinite fullness of beatitude and what it will be, to look forever at the face of Christ and see him look us into love. We're all way back at the beginning of that scale anyway, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah. so the differences between us are probably not so great. The differences between the greatest saint and the the most honest skeptic are probably not so great from the perspective of heaven as they seem to be to us. Well, that's important because I, I think there are a lot of people who go through a time of darkness, uh, when it's very difficult to pray, or uh, maybe they've encountered something awful in a religious institution or person who think that they're losing their faith when they may not be. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was studying the sort of roots of the Church of England and reading people like Richard Hooker and Lancelot Andrews, there's a fantastic sermon by Richard Hooker writing in the 1590s. And it's got this wonderfully certain-sounding title. The sermon is called On the Certainty and Perpetuity of Faith in the Elect. (laughs) But actually, what the sermon is really about is how God's faith working in us works with our faith, however small. Mm. And the text he took was an obscure verse from Habakkuk, where Habakkuk, you know, who's a prophet of the law, sits in tears in the midst of the ruins of Jerusalem and says, the text was just, it was four words, the law doth fail. Torah seems to be broken here. It's not happening. And Hooker says, if a great prophet whose words are enshrined in Scripture can say and think this and yet still be included in the Scripture, then so can you. Mm. And then he goes on to say that the person who laments their loss of faith or their apparent loss of faith, who seeks diligently for it, who laments that it seems to be going, already has faith because it's faith that's lamenting. Mm. The very feeling that you're losing something is a testament to your inner affirmation of that thing, and you'll find it again, or more properly speaking, it will find you. Mm. 
You mentioned the Narnia books. Uh, you and I share uh, the fact that those were uh, instrumental in leading us to Christ. I encounter so many people for whom that is true. And in the almost exact same way that these were stories read in childhood or early adolescence that kind of embedded <laughs> and it came to realization later. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because they're works of imaginative literature. And the imagination is one of the deepest faculties of the human soul. Now, we all know that at the time of the Enlightenment, there was a bit of a divorce took place between reason and imagination. And reason was all supposed to do with objective truth that no one could controvert. And imagination was reduced to this merely subjective thing. But I don't think it works like that. Mm. I think imagination is also a means whereby we we apprehend truth. I mean, Shakespeare says, imagination apprehends more than cool reason ever comprehends. Now, Lewis is a very interesting case in point. He talks about how when he was an atheist, the two halves of his mind, he says, were in sharpest contrast. The reason told him things that were true that he thought were absolutely ugly and meaningless. Imagination gave him the great myths and stories, but he thought they weren't true. And he had to find a way of bringing those two halves of his mind together. And of course, famously in the conversation with Tolkien and Dyson, he came to see that in the story of Jesus Christ, there was something that satisfied the richly mythic imagination, all the stories of dying and rising gods, but was also historically the case. You know, mm. when Quirinius was governor of Syria yeah. under Pontius Pilate, these things came together. And there's an interesting thing. Lewis, towards the second half of his life as a writer, he clearly knew how to wield proper logical argument and reasonable demonstration on the side of the faith, in defense of the faith, and books like Mere Christianity and Miracles and The Problem of Pain are full of that. But I think there came a point where he began to see that he could do more good by nurturing the imagination. And he, of course, he realized that that's how it had worked for him. There's the famous story in Surprised by Joy, where he he's still an atheist, but he somehow gets hold of a copy of George MacDonald's Fantastes. And he speaks of his imagination being baptized before he was. Mm. And the rest of him, you know, took a little longer to catch up. And I think he began to realize that he might do more good and speak more truth. They had this sense that if you trusted to the deep stories and the deepest images that a baptized imagination could give you, you could be the curator or the presenter of a story which was actually wiser than you are. Mm. So there might be all kinds of things in your work that God needed to say to people through image and story, which were more than you yourself had comprehended. And if you write a rational book, you have to have understood it all yourself first. Whereas if you write poetry or myth or story, you have to have a feel that it's right. You have to try and work so that it's true to what you're saying. But there's more in it than you know. Mm. So, for example, when the atomic bomb was first used and the sheer horror of what we might conceivably do to each other with these, it dawned on the world. Lots of people assumed because it had been published post Hiroshima, that there was some kind of deliberate allegory in the Lord of the Rings about the weapon we cannot use and we will mm. become like the enemy and all of that. But actually that part of the story was constructed in the 30s and 40s. He had no conscious allegory at all, but he was telling such a true story mm. that it carried on nurturing. In fact, Lewis praised The Lord of the Rings by saying that it was not allegory, but because it was written so deeply, it was continuously suggestive of incipient allegories, as it were. 
And I think of the number of times I've gone back to the Narnia stories. And of course, I know the broad thing and I can see the Aslan Christ thing. But there are so many other little details in that. I mean, I'll give you an example. When Edmund is there and the witch in her role as the accuser, is laying out the chart of all Edmund's obvious sins and why he deserves death. Lewis has this little thing that Edmund couldn't bear. If he'd thought about it or looked at her, he would have been destroyed. But all Edmund could do was keep his eyes fixed on Aslan constantly Hmm. as the accusations against him were uttered. And the number of times I've gone back to that and realized that that's what I need to do is to fix my eyes on Jesus and not get caught in the kind of awful to and fro of your conscience and your accusers. And it's so easy to go down a path of despair that way. Hmm. But if you keep looking, as it were, into the eyes of Aslan, that's what you depend on. Hmm. Now, I'm not even sure that Lewis was consciously thinking, well, I mean, he certainly wasn't consciously thinking, one day this will help Guite, you know, in an yeah. agony of despair. He just wrote what would be true for that little boy at that moment. That, that is powerful. That is powerful. This episode is brought to you in part by Matthew 5-9 Fellowship, who supports evangelical pastors and leaders in shepherding their communities to live the gospel and place their identity in Jesus Christ above partisanship and societal divisions. Jesus has called his disciples to be peacemakers, and that call is particularly needed in our often toxically polarized society. The Matthew 5-9 Fellowship provides resources to help pastors, leaders, and their communities faithfully navigate difficult issues without dividing over them. It fosters relationship by connecting like-minded evangelical leaders across the country. Also, they care about the personal well-being of pastors and leaders, so they provide space and opportunities to experience spiritual renewal to ensure leaders flourish both privately and publicly. A polarized country needs a peacemaking church. Check us out at Matthew59.org. Sign up for our monthly newsletter and download free resources such as our Transcending Toxic Polarization booklet using the code Matthew59. What would you say to someone who would say, I feel disintegrated the way that you were talking about reason and imagination and Lewis saying that those two parts of myself can't fit together? How could someone cultivate a better imagination? Well, I think if somebody said to me, I feel disintegrated or torn in two directions, or I have to use one of the modern phrases, cognitive dissonance or whatever, I would say, well, that's not at all surprising and it's probably a good sign because we're living in an age which I think has foisted upon us a fundamentally false view of who we are because the current dogma of science as it stands at the moment, except for the physicists, is materialism of a very mechanistic, predetermined kind. And it tends to see everything as mechanism. And it tends to see the human body as mechanism and animals' bodies as machines. And now it's finally seeing our brain as mechanism and is making the awful mistake of taking a mechanism we happen to have made, the computer, and then reading it back onto us and saying, well, we're hardwired for some things and we're programmed for others. I mean, this is an appalling blasphemy because it's exactly what it says in the Psalms, that if you make an idol, you become like the idol. You know, Mm -hmm. we made this thing and now we think we're as little as that is. But anyway, that is actually a false view. You know, you are an infinitely mysterious person. You're a soul whose height and breadth and depth no one could measure. You know, you were an idea in the divine mind before the world was made. You are destined for glory. You bear the image of God within you. 
Those are actually objectively the case about us. And part of the image of God in us is our imagination. So if we're forced to live as though we're mere units of consumption and little things, you know, driven by genes, we're having to pretend to live in a much crushed and smaller image of who we are than is actually the case. So what happens is we end up repressing all the deepest and truest and highest parts of ourselves and take revenge on them by calling them sentiment or whatever, you know. Um, so we're essentially trying to cram the deep mystery of who we are into a little series of categories and boxes in which we don't fit. So we feel the pain of it. I mean, I love that thing in um, The Weight of Glory where he says we're like children sort of making mud pies when an offer of a holiday by the seaside is on offer. But we can't even imagine what the holiday by the seaside would be. Mm. But of course, there's a bit in us that wants the holiday by the mm -hmm. seaside, even if we can hardly imagine it. So I think a lot of the kind of, I mean, perhaps psychosis is too strong, but a lot of the mental distress and the increasing number of people who are in mental distress in our age, some of it may be purely personal, you know, family reasons, but a lot of it is to do with the fact that we're being forced by the current spirit of our age to essentially ignore or repress the entire spiritual and imaginative side of our lives. Hmm. And of course, we can't keep doing that forever. And that's why everybody loves fantasy literature. And that's why people, you know, I mean, why teenagers constantly go around bathed in music, you know, mm -hmm. they've got their headphones on and they're, I don't grudge it to them because the other world that's on offer is not worth having, whereas they can really expand and be themselves and be other people in the music. If somebody said to me, I feel disintegrating, as I say, I'd be sympathetic, but I'd also say the very fact that you feel disintegrating shows that integration is real and possible. Mm. If there wasn't an integral you on offer, you wouldn't feel the pain of the disintegration. Hmm. So start with that. Start with the hope that you should give. If, in fact, there is, you know, as some bleak, uh, you know, modernist philosophers want to say, there is no self and there's just a series of roles and, there's, you know, it's just an epiphenomenon of the concatenation of atoms. It means nothing. If that was the case, then it wouldn't bother you that you were being split hmm. into different things and full of contradictions. The fact that you're bothered by it suggests that somewhere in you is the image of a whole person who is distressed <laughs> because the bits of you are being torn apart. And you have to intuit and love that almost ghostly image of the whole person so that you can begin to bring back the bits to fit into that whole, to really know what that whole person would look like. Again, you look to Christ because he's the only fully integrated human being that we know. That really resonates with uh, Walker Percy's idea of Wayfarer of the castaway, that the uniqueness of the human being is that we can know that we're alienated and in despair. Yeah. Not just an organism and an environment. Yeah, yeah. I think if we were just an organism and an environment, then none of this would bother us. Hmm. And so that's, of course, what Lewis, again, in The Way to the Glory, speaks of the inconsolable longing, the inconsolable secret that we can hardly say, and yet we give it away all the time. You know, <laughs> there's this, hmm. you know, this thing for which we long, the yearning for the far-off country. But of course, the far off country isn't really far off in the sense that it's come to us in Christ. Uh, that's what he means when he says the kingdom of God has come near to you. I find it really interesting that you mentioned physicists. Yeah. A few minutes ago, that uh, you said, except for the physicists, because I find myself saying to people all the time, 20 years ago on a secular university campus, 
if I were looking for faculty members who were Christians, they would usually be in the English department because they were influenced by Chesterton or Lewis or Tolkien or someone. Now, far more likely to be astrophysicists than to be uh, English literature professors. Why? I was going to say the supreme, one of the supreme contemporary examples of that is uh, Sir John Polkinghorne, who is, you know, mm-hmm. fellow of the Royal Society, great cosmologist, uh, was president of Queen's College, you know, who's a very distinguished astrophysicist and also an Anglican priest, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? I think one of the things that has most crushed faith in people since the mid-19th century has been the dominance of materialism as a sort of... Im- empiricist, you know, empirical, everything is reduced to matter. And the assumption, the 19th century assumption about matter was that it was dead, finite, solid, and irreducible to anything else. But the presumption was that they knew what matter was. And of course, what the physicists did from the 20th century onwards, starting in Cambridge, is to realize that we had absolutely no idea what matter was. And the more we studied it, the first thing we discovered that it wasn't solid, which we thought that there was more space in it than we thought, and that you know, it was a Brownian motion that gave us this tactile sense of it. And then, of course, the great breakthrough in quantum, which made you realize that, on the one hand, you might look at light as particles, but on the other hand, as waves, and that the point about its waveform is that you can make certain predictions about where it might be at any point. And when the wave function collapses, as they say, then we can say, oh, it was there. The very asked question of asking, is it there, might bring it there. But it is full of complete freedom and possibility. And then when you got a little bit further to so-called quantum entanglement, where you realize that the ordinary laws, as you thought they understood, for example, you couldn't communicate at anything faster than the speed of light, which is the constant, that actually entangled particles split and then at opposite sides of the cosmos mirror one another. And the motion of one is given to the motion of the other. So basically, I think the physicists stumbled upon mystery, freedom, and a kind of enchantment right in the middle of the stuff that we thought was also dull and plodding. Mm. So they were less likely to say that because we are material, every problem has now been solved and free will is an illusion. And much more likely to say, Goodness, if we are material, then we're far more magical and spacious and free than we ever thought we were. Hmm. And that speaks rather more into faith and mysticism than it does into this kind of rigid, militant atheism, which tries to extinguish freedom and the spirit. My favorite part of uh, Lifting the Veil, which I love uh, this book, but my favorite part is your section on the transfiguration. Oh, yeah, thank you. Because... This is a text that I'm consistently drawn to and I find gets almost no attention uh, in terms of the way that we tell the story of Jesus. Can you explain what the transfiguration when Jesus took three of his closest disciples onto the mountain and was illuminated uh, with light? Can you explain what that has to do with the way we live? Well, there's a big question. I, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I, I remember when, when I become a Christian as an undergraduate, partly through reading these great early texts, Augustine and Aquinas and stuff, but obviously when I went to theological college, I had to read all the kind of rather divisive, sneering kind of 
debunking kind of biblical criticism. You just had to get through that. And a lot of that's gone out of fashion now anyway, fortunately. But at the time I was studying, it was like that. And I remember reading this commentary on Luke, when it got to Luke's account of the transfiguration. And the commentator rather high-handedly said, well, this is clearly a misplaced resurrection narrative. You know, as though St. Luke had made a slight error with the cut and paste, you know. <laughs> and I was annoyed because I was annoyed with the whole approach of breaking the Gospels down into little bits and then thinking you could reconstruct them in your own way. But I was also given a brilliant, and I thought, my God, it is a resurrection narrative. So the question is, is it misplaced? And then I began to see how the Mount of Transfiguration is immediately followed by Jesus setting his face like Flint and going to Jerusalem and Peter saying, no, you mustn't do it. And Jesus saying, yes, I must. And it's like he's given them a little glimpse of resurrection. Of course, the resurrection hasn't happened. But just for a minute, he shows them a glimpse of what that splendor and glory would be like. And they need it because they're going to have to remember it when they get down, when actually they are really seriously going to doubt. Think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Think about the tenses. We had hoped that he would be the one, but no. You know, because the driving theology of their day was almost like a kind of prosperity gospel. It was like, God will bless you if you're righteous and bad stuff will happen to you if you're not righteous. And because there was a particular curse in Leviticus, cursed shall he be who hangs upon a tree. That was one of the reasons why the Romans crucified Jews. They went around the world finding out what was the worst thing for that particular religion and then doing it to people, you know. So for a lot of people who had followed Jesus who put their eggs in that basket, seeing him crucified with no divine intervention was like saying, okay, now it's proved it's like a witch's ducking stool, you know, if she drowns. You know, know, Mm -hmm. we backed the wrong horse. This was the wrong guy. And they had to go through those awful three days thinking like, that's it. And then when God shows, no, he really was the guy by raising him from the dead, they then have to go back and reread all the scriptures. But I don't think they could have got through that day if there hadn't been for some of them a memory of what they had actually seen on the mountain. I mean, it might help uh, in that thing. I think I use my poem on the transfiguration and maybe I should read it if I can just grab it here quickly. I was very struck in the account of the transfiguration by the presence of Moses and Elijah. Now, the normal thing that the scholars say in the critical commentaries, quite helpfully, is that Moses stands for the law and Elijah stands for the prophets, and therefore that the law and the prophets are standing on either side of Jesus. And that would be fantastic. Jesus fulfills them. And I'm sure that was part of the intention of the gospel writers. But I've never read a commentary that says, oh, by the way, Moses was lifted up and saw God on a mountain, Mm -hmm. and so did Elijah. Mm -hmm. And I began to wonder whether, in fact, the moment of the trap, because all times are equally present to God, then in a sense, they were seeing Moses and Elijah in their time, seeing the back of Jesus, but not Mm. quite, but getting in. Well, they stood in the front and saw the face of Jesus. But soon Moses and Elijah will all say that it's... So that was where my thing started. I voiced this sonnet as for one of the disciples being just kept back from the edge of despair on Good Friday by the memory of that moment. So that when I talk about this blackened sky, this darkened scar at the end, I'm thinking about somebody looking at the apparent complete defeat of Jesus and remembering what they saw. So here's how it goes. It's just called Transfiguration. For that one moment in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil 
that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell, dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leapt up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within. A sudden blaze of long-extinguished hope trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are. So I guess one of the things I'm saying at the heart of that poem is that the transformation is not so much something that happened to the Jesus as something that happened to the sight of the disciples. I think Paul totally gets that when he says, now we see through a glass darkly, then we shall see. So that's why I said in darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. The other thing which I think it testifies to is the extraordinary bit in the prologue to John's Gospel, where it says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, of the Father, full of truth and grace. Now, I don't think that can mean anything than that other than the transfiguration, even though that's not an episode that John writes about, but it's there. We beheld his glory, because John is there, of course. That moment of utterly embodying in a form that we can know and love and see, the otherwise incomprehensible magnitude of who he is, is both an astonishing grace to us from him, but also I think the key to our own lives and creativity. And I think the key to Christian preaching. I think there's a real problem that God having done this astonishing thing of bodying himself forth and being made flesh, we're scared. We're like the people at the uh, at the bottom of the mountain when they say to Moses, you go up and deal with that God stuff. And I think there's a bit in humanity that's almost scared of the extraordinary intimacy available from Jesus. And we go like, mm, let, let me just turn this into a series of abstract propositions. Mm. There's a wonderful line by the poet, Scottish poet Edwin Muir about his experience of bad church as a kid, where he says about this church, he says, absolutely brilliant line. He says, the word made flesh is here made words again. Mm. <laughs> the word made word in flourish and arrogant crook, you know. And he talks later in the poem about what he calls abstract calamity that our refusal of Christ often takes the form, our refusal of the proffer of God's love takes the form of a refusal of incarnation. So we abstract him out mm. into a set of propositions. That's why I think, lovely as it is to have the technology that allows us to talk, I think there's an underlying danger. I think computers and phones particularly are a means of abstracting and discarnating ourselves. Huh all the time and trying to be in more places than we can actually be in. And I think the really, the real moments of gospel grace happen when living persons are talking intimately together in the same space, because that's the way Jesus chose to do it. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Okay. 
based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November. It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. How could someone who does teach the Bible, maybe a preacher, maybe a Sunday school teacher, someone else, how does someone avoid doing that, mm. making the word made flesh back into words again of yeah. sort of defaulting to abstractions? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is to become conscious of it. You can literally look at the prose you've just written, you know, and think how many of those are abstract words and how many of them, how many of them are concrete in particular. I think the obvious example is Jesus himself who tells very particular stories and really gets you to imagine particular people. I mean, he uses, he appeals to our imagination in parable and story. And I think obviously the whole arc of scripture is not a set of, it's not a systematic theology. It's not, I haven't got anything against systematic theologians. I think it's sometimes helpful to do that. But in the end, theology, as it's given us in the scripture, is narrative. It's about the arc of a story. Mm -hmm. And it's best told us real stories about real people who meet a real God, a God so real that he's more real than anything else. And one of the most heart-catching moments, I think, in The Lord of the Rings is, you know, when Frodo and Sam are at the absolute worst pitch and everything seems to have gone wrong and they're exhausted and they're stuck on the side of a mountain and they're never going to get anywhere. And Frodo tries to comfort Sam, not with some, you know, set of abstractions, but he says, remember the great stories about Beren, you know, and the crown of Morgoth and all these, you know. And he says, suddenly says, do you think we might be in a story? Hmm. Perhaps we're in a story. Perhaps the story is over yet. And of course, as a reader, we're going, yeah, yeah, you are in a story. There's, there's, there's a whole bunch more pages, you know. But you can't help catching your breath and thinking, wait, maybe I'm in a story. Hmm. Maybe the God who knows me and makes me loves my story and hasn't finished telling it yet. Hmm. You know, I can carry on. I don't have to know the end of the story. I just have to accept that he's telling it in and through and with me. And let him get on with the telling, you know, and not mm. think I already know what the last page is, you know. Trust the storyteller. I mean, uh, you know, that's the great thing. You know, a really good storyteller, you trust. You trust that he's going to work with this in the right way. C.S. Lewis did more to help me understand the atonement mm. in the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe than any amount. I mean, I read the great, there's a great famous book on the atonement called Christus Victor by Arlen, mm -hmm. in which he points out that in the Bible there are at least five models of atonement. Models is a very good word. That you know, One of them is ransom, and in fact, that's the one that Lewis uses in, in that particular story, although that you could say there's some penal substitution in it as well. But words like penal substitution would, would have fallen even if I comprehended them, they would fall on deafness. If I did comprehend with them in the way they're often preached, I would have found them repellent. But the story <laughs> completely convicted me and brought me where I needed to be. Yes, the stone table. That has, yeah. has marked many of us, I think. But think how tactile that story is. You know, the amazing romp they have with Laszlo, you know, that... 
the furry golden goodness. It's all, you know, and, and even in the grief of it, the tactile grief, the girls crying until they can't cry anymore. And it's so vivid. It's so embodied. It's the opposite of abstract. Hmm. And I think we can just learn from that. I think you need abstraction sometimes, but you must always return it to the world and embody it in some story or image or metaphor. I mean, obviously, I would say that because I'm a poet, and the thing I love about poetry is its bodied thing. I mean, poetry works with metaphor, and while metaphor may carry you to something beyond the concrete, it's no good if it isn't a physical thing that you can really love and know as well. Hmm. It has to have a foot in both camps. I mean, meta, of course, means across, and the forebit of it means carry. You have to... You're moving back and forth between two shores of reality. But you've got to definitely be in the bodied one that we know with your metaphor before you try carrying anybody beyond it. With poetry, I think there are a lot of people who would say, I don't know how to read poetry. I don't know how to start. I'm afraid that I'm going to either pick up bad poetry and not know enough to know that it's bad, or I just won't be able to understand it. So if you were talking to that person who's saying, I don't know a poet, I don't know an expert in poetry, how should I start to approach this? What counsel would you give to that person? Well, the first thing I'd say is that whatever poem it is, read it aloud. Hmm. Don't read it silently. Poetry started when, before writing, there was an oral tradition in poetry. And when you read Homer, for example, when they get to a bit where there's some poetry and they're all at a feast and a poet stands up and strikes his lyre, He's uttering it on behalf of the whole community and everybody's listening. It's not written down at all. And in fact, many people think that some of the greatest passages of Homer were simply orally composed and and passed on from generation to generation before they were finally written down. So have the sound of it, taste it on your tongue, speak it out loud. Often the very act of reading a poem clarifies it. The other thing I would say is don't start with modern poetry. Modern poetry, particularly of the post-T.S. Eliot kind, is a very strange bifurcation off the branch of the long tradition of European poetry. It often has abandoned the things that used to form poetry, like meter and rhyme and rhythm. And sometimes it's kind of obscure and confessional. It's not the place to start. I think you have to start with the great classics. Well, of course, we all start poetry with that wonderful thing, the nursery rhyme, you know. Mm-hmm. And nursery rhymes have the strong rhythms and obvious rhymes, and we love them. And in fact, if you listen to children when they're learning speech, before they're articulating words, it's clearly poetry because it's rhythmic and rhyming. It's, you know, before mm-hmm. they actually get to sentences. So I think poetry is primal, and prose is a later and in some ways slightly regrettable sophistication. So I would then say go back to the really reliable early classic poems. I mean... Keats's Great Odes, the lyrics of Shelley, Byron's short poems, even if you don't want to read the longer ones. I mean, T.S. Eliot said that true poetry communicates before it's understood, and I think that's true even if his, but poetry should also delight you. It should... So I'm um, just to pick a random... I mean, thing. you know, I mentioned Byron, whom some people might regard as not safe reading at all. I mean, people said of him in his time he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. <laughs> I'm not commending Byron's life or morals, but I am commending his perfection of the short English lyric. So just think, for example, from his beautiful sequence of poems, Hebrew Melodies, which also has some wonderful versions of the Psalms in it. But there's a lovely love poem in that which begins... She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. 
Now that you can hear the lilt of that, there's a satisfaction of saying it and you can get it straight away. But later you can go, oh golly, that's so beautiful. Dark and bright aspect and eyes. This is a woman whose skin is darkly colored, but whose eyes are bright, you know, and he's seeing the beauty of that contrast. And then you, oh, I get it now. She's in a cloudless climb. This is in the Middle East. And it's the darkness of the skies and the brightness of the stars. And you go back to what seems like you see how perfectly everything mirrors and connects with everything else. So the poem can carry on giving you a great deal of satisfaction long after you first heard it. But to hear it and to read it out loud, I think, is the beginning. The other thing I'd say about poetry is don't try and get it all at once. A lot of people mm. give up poetry because they hear somebody expound a poem and they've got tons of stuff out and they're saying, well, I didn't see that. And they give them a poem, another quick read and go, well, I'm no good at poetry. I mean, the point about poetry is its language slowed down. It's very rich. And no really good poem gives you everything it has on the first reading. I mean... I used to say to my students sometimes, you don't want to go out with a poem that gives you everything on the first date. You know, you want a poem that's <laughs> going to sneak up on you 20 years later and give you an unexpected kiss of meaning. You think, oh, golly, I never saw that. I've known this poem for years. And suddenly I get it. So you don't beat yourself up because you didn't get it. The point is to take gratefully everything it has to give with each new reading. And the more you love it and recite it and read it. So don't think about any poem as a long-term relationship. Hmm. I mean, I've had a long-term relationship with George Herbert's poem, Prayer, for 40 years now I've been reading that poem. And eventually the time came, I thought, I've got to talk somehow, talk about how good this is. And I ended up writing, because it's, only, it's a sonnet, it's only 14 lines, but it has 26 different images and then a final word, something understood. And I ended up writing 27 sonnets just to try and give a little glimpse of what 30 or 40 years of reading that one sonnet had meant to me, you know, yeah. and I could probably write another 27 sonnets 20 years from now if I'm still alive with new stuff in it. Yeah. And yet the original poem is so small. So I don't say, golly, why didn't I get that all when I read it in my 20s? I couldn't have got it all when I read it in my 20s. I hadn't been through some of the things. There's a middle passage in that, starting with the phrase, the Christian plummet. Mm -hmm. and going through Engine Against the... which is about struggle and wrestling and a dark night of the soul wrestling with God. I wasn't ready for that in my buoyant 20s, but boy, was I ready for it in my 40s. You know? Mm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, that that is remarkable that you mentioned Christian Plummet because your poem by that name was very meaningful to me at a... Uh, moment in my life when, just as you said, I don't think I would have understood it earlier mm. in my life, but it struck me and I found myself reading it every day for a while. Wow, well, I'm, I'm really honored. Might you uh, close us with a reading of of that poem? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. It's an interesting example. One of the things I know now as a poet, having written poetry and had it out there for a few years, and then had letters from people who read it, there is stuff in your poetry that you didn't know was there, but it really is there. Mm. And there are ways of taking your images that... So when George Herbert, in his original poem, called prayer the Christian plummet, he was probably initially thinking of the lead line that you drop down, you know, at the front of a boat to see how much water you've got under the keel. And he was saying, look, as a ship goes into the unknown, the depth sounder lowers it down and finds out if there's water under the keel, and that's what prayer does. 
And I'm sure that's exactly what he meant. He may have meant more than that. But for me, reading it, it was the juxtapositions of the word Christian and plummet. Plummet not just as the lead line you sink down, but as the act of plummeting. And I'm somebody who does occasionally plummet right down to the depths and just, you know, uh, unspeakable depression. And I have been in churches where you're made to feel guilty about that, like as though there was something wrong with you. And actually, you know, you read the Bible, you see, well, what about Job and the psalmist in Psalm 88? But of course, if you were a plummet, I just love the fact that he put the word Christian and plummet together. It was, you could be a Christian and plummet. That was the main thing. Mm. But I also thought about how a ship needs a plummet. We need people to know how deep the water is underneath here. We need to have somebody on the line to haul them back up again. So those things went into it. But let me read you the poem, The Christian Plummet. Down into the icy depths you plunge, the cold, dark undertow of your depression. Even your memories of light made strange as you fall further from all comprehension. You feel as though they've thrown you overboard, your fellow Christians on the sunlit deck, a stone-cold Jonah on whom scorn is poured, a sacrifice to save them from the wreck. But someone has their hands on your long line. You sound for them the depths they sail above. One who took Jonah as his only sign sinks lower still to hold you in his love. And though you cannot see or speak or breathe, the everlasting arms are underneath. The everlasting arms are underneath. Malcolm Guy, thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. Links are always in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode, including a link about how you can have a trial membership to Christianity Today. Be sure to subscribe to the program, send an episode along to a friend who might benefit from it, and leave us a review when you can. It helps other people to find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Russell Moore, and this is The Russell Moore Show from Christianity Today. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for the Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.